We're in Acts chapter 6 this morning. Um, so is morning. Yeah. This uh, chapter, particularly the, the first seven uh, verses of the chapter, um, I have often used this section as a, a significant lesson in leadership. There's more going on here than that, but we can draw some pretty important lessons about leadership in this passage as well. Now, as you know, at least the context of this, just to remind you of a couple of things, the context of this is we, we are still following, that's where the book of Acts, I think, can be outlined, the directive of Jesus. Start in Jerusalem, go to Judea, then Samaria, uttermost parts of the earth. We're still in Jerusalem. This is the Jerusalem church. We're not anywhere outside of Jerusalem. We're not in Jericho or, or way up in Galilee. We're not this. We're in Jerusalem. So this is the Jewish church. Almost everyone is Jewish that has converted now to Christ and so on. The second thing to remember is, and we've seen this in each chapter, this, the Jerusalem church is exploding in growth. And you see that in the very first sentence. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, the disciples, that's another term that's used of those who have come to faith in Christ. And so I'm saying all that because that again is the context but as the church is growing, a major dispute developed. It continued on verse 1. A complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews. Because, well, let me stop there for just a minute. Uh, you, you, I have to explain this a little bit, which is going to take a little bit of historical explanation. But if you don't get this, you don't understand these terms nor the essence of the debate and, and the dispute that's going on. The term Hellenist is used here and by Luke, and you see it in lots of extra-biblical literature. The Hellenist refers to the Jewish people of the diaspora. Now, that word may not be as familiar to you. I'll stand up and write it here. Because this is a term you really should, should be familiar with. These are the Jews of the diaspora. That's two Greek words, but it's put together. But it essentially means those who have spread out from Israel, from Palestine, from Jerusalem. In other words, almost all of these people were the result of the various exiles. I'm putting an S underlining it because there were multiple exiles in Israel's history where they were either forced to leave I mean, coerced in order to leave, or they left because of persecution and economic hardship. And the, the diaspora Jews, they're called Hellenists because they spoke Greek. They didn't speak Hebrew. They, they spread all through the Mediterranean world. And that's extremely important to remember, because this is going to set up a cultural conflict in the early church. And so this is kind of a lesson of how do you deal with conflict in the church and how do leaders handle this kind of conflict. So the Hellenists are Greek-speaking Jews of the diaspora. And there were, I'll just, I'm sure some of these you remember, but in 722 B.C., the Assyrian Empire conquered northern Israel and spread the people out. In 586, the Babylonians completed their conquest of Judah and, among other things, destroying the temple and forced thousands and thousands and thousands of Jews to move east. And they also went other places. Then under the Greeks, Alexander the Great, conquered it in oh, about 329 B.C. or so, 
B30 BC. And they, they too spread then. A lot of them spread into Egypt and so on. And then Rome conquered them in 63 BC. And again, there's more spreading out. So they are just, they're, they're spreading out all over the world. But they come back to Jerusalem for some of the feast days, whether it's Passover, you know, Feast of Tabernacles, etc. Presumably that's why they're here. Because remember, <coughs> I guess I should have mentioned this at the beginning to just review. We're only a few months chapter 6. We're only a few months after Jesus had gone back to the Father. This isn't 50 years after Jesus. This is only months after Christ's death, burial, and crucifixion, death, burial, crucifixion, and ascension back to the Father. <coughs> the Hebrews, that's a term that is referenced to the Jews who did not disperse. The Jews who remained in, I'll use the word Palestine, if you know what I mean, and they would have spoken Hebrew or its dialect Aramaic. <clears throat> so there's language difference. There's culture, because I can tell there's a lot of a lot about this in the Bible, but especially in extra-biblical literature. The diaspora Jews culturally become very, very different than the Hebrews that say. I mean, considerably different. And that will set up issues uh, in the history of Judaism, and that... The spreading of the Jews. Today, you still speak of diaspora Jews. And that's a term I still see in the newspaper. I still see it in magazines. It's still used. These are the Jews who are outside of Israel. So, what's the nature of the dispute between the Hellenist Jews and the Hebrew Jews? Which sounds a little redundant, but it isn't when you're speaking ethnically. The dispute is over their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Now the pronoun there is referring to the Hellenists, to the Greek-speaking Jews. Now let's make sure we understand two things about this issue. The widows, I, I think you know this, but I mean in the ancient world there wasn't Social Security or Medicare or any kind of safety net. If you were a widow, you were in one of the most socially speaking and then economically speaking, you are in the most destitute situations possible. And unless your children were right next to you and cared for you, you, you did not have the financial ability to, uh, to care for yourself. Even you could say to sustain life. And remember, we also talked about this last couple of weeks, the Jews in Jerusalem, when they made the decision to follow Christ, they would be ostracized. Do you know what I mean by that word? They would be ignored and kicked out of families and set apart. Nobody wanted anything to do with them. And so it was not unusual. As a matter of fact, it was often common. A member of of a Jewish family would come to know Christ, and the rest of the family would disown them. And so caring for the widows is caring for these very needy people who had nowhere else to go. And the daily distribution relates a little bit to what we saw at the end of chapter 4, which then led to Ananias and Sapphira in chapter 5, which we studied last week. Those who were wealthy, and that was about 10% of the population, owned some land. They would often sell some of that land, which would help with these daily distributions. Now, that's all of the historical context for what's going on in verse 1. Because, I mean, if you don't understand that, you're just reading the words, and you're kind of saying, okay... But I mean, once you see the church is caring here for needy people within the body. They're meeting physical needs. 
which is a good thing. Many of you in your churches have, um, well, there are all kinds of funds. Sometimes they're called benevolence funds or special, you know, I mean, where we do the same thing. We care for needy families or families in crisis. So, so that's what is going on here. So any questions about that historically? I mean, it, it, I hope you don't mind me doing things like this because it really brings these verses alive and you understand really what's going on here. So the widows being ignored, they were widows in Jerusalem? That's correct. Okay. Now, they, they're, they're widows of Hellenistic Jews who, for whatever reason, uh, whether they traveled with their families or whatever, are in a destitute situation. So were they in similar churches or different churches? Or Who? Hellenists in one and the... Ah, good question. That is a really good question. It would seem, from the way Luke is describing this, I can't answer the question, I'd go to a verse and show you, but from the way he's talking about it, they were in separate churches. These are house churches, remember. Right. And there's no such thing as a building that we call it. These are house churches, but they would be gathering... And, and that makes sense, just humanly speaking, people of their kind. Other Hellenists, probably friends that had traveled from Cyprus or Greece or Ephesus or any of those other cities of the diaspora. And so that's just natural. And language, that's correct. Because the, the Hellenists had not learned Hebrew, and most of the people that knew Hebrew or its dialect, the Aramaic, didn't know Greek. At least in Jerusalem. Now, if you're up in the northern areas, like in Capernaum and, and those areas where Peter and John uh, were from, there they would have known Greek probably because that's where there's a lot of trade going on. And <coughs> but here in Jerusalem, there was no need for them to learn Greek. So it would almost seem from the way this is phrased that the, the Jewish Christians were kind of the senior group, the administrators of things. If they're making decisions about who gets the Hebrew, the, the Hebrew Christians, right? Mm -hmm. That's correct. That's correct. And so why should, why should they put up with these people coming in sponging off of them? Well, yeah, I mean, just you can see all of the sentiments that you and I have. You can see how they would play into their thinking. It's a little off the topic, but the Sanhedrin was basically made up of Sadducees and Pharisees. Is that right? That made up the Sanhedrin? How does that come into play with the Diaspora Jew and the, uh, the ones... The other ones you mentioned. How, are, these, are they still under their control? Uh, theoretically, sort of, practically, no. Because once, see, that was one of the real challenges of the diaspora on, in Judaism. If, say, you live in, well, let's just real famous cities. You live in Rome, or you live in Athens, or you live in uh, Ephesus, or whatever. It, there is no way you can worship. You can't do sacrifices. You, you, can't, you can't go to the priest. So all of those things. So what replaces that in your life? The synagogue system. The synagogue system developed during the block of time we call the, from the exile, it began 586 B.C. until Jesus' time. That's when the synagogue system developed. So those Jews are who are the Jews of the diaspora. They are being instructed in worshiping in the synagogue system. But the synagogues are not the temple. So there's no high priest there. There's no sacrifice there of animals. There's no direct observance of the feast days where you can act, often what they were, you're acting things out because you're not there. You're not in the land. That's why many, and not all, because it was very expensive and very hard to do, many diaspora Jews came back to Jerusalem during the, 
the special holidays like Passover, uh, Feast of Unleavened Bread, those kinds of things. And that's presumably why they are here. Because again, this is only this is only months after Jesus' work was done. Does that answer your question? Wow. All of a sudden. Yeah, please. And I probably should know it, but I don't. Where is Jerusalem on this map? Well, uh, I'll, I'm going to have to walk back and show you. Let me just send No, I'll, I'll walk back and show you. I don't want It's good for me to walk. He told me it's really good to walk, so I always do what I'm told when I walk. <laughs> That's five miles away. Okay. Don't ever forget that, Woody. I won't. I'm going to give you a blank map next week with a couple of dots, and you point out Jerusalem. A lot of effort into that. I'm just kidding. Well, I want. I mean, I want. I genuinely want you to know where Jerusalem is. So that's. Good. It's a. It's it's 2,500 feet above sea level. It's on the. It's on the top of a ridge of the Judean mountains. Um, and it's, 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 David made it the capital because of its location. But it's in one of the poorest areas of Israel. There's nothing there, even today. All right, can I move into verse 2? Yeah. Thank you. And the, so now you understand the situation, you understand why all this is developing. And the twelve summoned the full number of disciples and said, now remember, the twelve would be the eleven original disciples plus Matthias. Remember, they chose Matthias to replace Judas way back in chapter 1, just to remind you of who the twelve is. So they're kind of, and I think it was Fred that said that, these, these are the original twelve. These aren't Hellenistic Jews. These are the Hebrew Jews. These don't have anything to do with Hellenistic Jews. So the twelve summoned the full number and said, I'm in verse 2, it is not right. By the way, that word right is a very, the way it's translated right, is a very important word. It's not appropriate. This does not fit with the objectives of God that we should give up preaching the word and serve tables. The, the phrase to serve tables is the akinoi, which we get our word deacon from that. In other words, to serve. So you, you say, well, wait a minute. They should be doing that. What's the matter with them helping the distribution of these widows? They should be doing that. Do you want your senior pastor, whom you've charged to be the primary preacher and proclaimer of the word, cutting the grass of the church? Do you want to see him doing it? Do you want the senior pastor of your church who does the main, main preaching in your church, which means he needs to study and so on, washing the windows in the church? No. I mean, you're saying, well, he should do that. Why shouldn't he serve like that? You say, wait, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Their priority is to preach the word of God to these new churches in Jerusalem. Leadership is understanding priorities. And it is understanding, this is a very important term, both the Old Testament and the New Testament, that your leadership responsibilities are stewardship from God. And so they're saying, 
it is not appropriate, it does not fit with God's standards for us to be serving these widows. It's not that that's wrong or that's not, it's not a value issue. It's a priority issue. I've done quite a bit of consulting with churches over the years, and it's often how, how, how do they get all the work done in the church, and how do, they get, how do they see their pastor's role, and how do they see the board's role, and all that kind of stuff. And I've often said this, and particularly you know, at the school I used to lead, uh, we would graduate, you know, a half dozen to a dozen uh, preachers. You know, they were in the preaching program a year. And so you want to get them pla- placed and so on. Now, a young guy just out of college going into a church that's 90 years old with established elders who are, you know, their 60s or 70, how's he going to fit in with those guys? Because what are they going to get We want you to do everything that our other pastors did. Don't bring new ideas in. Don't tell us to change things. You're here to do one thing, and it's do what we tell you to do. Now, I'm being a little, I'm being a, a little obnoxious there. But my own opinion is that an elder board, or whatever the structure of your leadership is, has to really understand what is your priority for that pastor? Isn't it to preach the word to you? I mean, 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is inspired and is profitable for proof, correction, and training in righteousness to equip the man of God to serve. So if that is the charge of your pastor, and you go on to chapter 4 of 1 Timothy, he says, preach the word. Day in and day out, preach the word. So they're saying it's a matter of priorities. So I would often say to these boards, your major goal is to protect that pastor. A protective function to make sure he has enough time to study and to prepare for preaching and teaching the word of God during the week. Now, I don't know how you guys think about that, but that what, what these guys are saying in verse 2 remains extremely important today. So to have a pastor out and cutting the roses or trimming the bushes, I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. That means either the church is not thinking wisely enough to have somebody to do that, either through volunteers or somebody paying it, or the pastor's got his priorities way out of whack. Unless he's doing it for leisure time activity or exercise or something, no pastor should be trimming the roses or cutting the grass or washing the windows. It's not that that's wrong to do that. It's just that's not a matter of priority. If you want an effective pastor who preaches the word of God, you've got to protect him and allow him to have enough time to study. As I mean, I, I preached and taught almost all my life. And I'm telling you, to study, to study the word of God is very time consuming. It takes a lot of time. And so I, I'm saying all that to give some, this, this is really what's important. A lot of people in the congregation and even a lot of boards don't understand that. They don't think that way. All they're thinking about is filling a slot. Okay, we got the slot filled. Now go with it. And when we tell you to do this, you do it. That, I mean, it's just, it's kind of a, it's really a very sad situation of what that brings, does often to local. It brings something to my mind, like a, like a young pastor with a family and young children growing up and things like that. That's, that's probably a 
kind of interfering sometimes with with his praying to the Lord. And, and it can. I mean, it's what um, what I think is important individually, personally, as well as for a, a board. I mean, I had. When I was president, I had a six-page evaluation sheet for me that I, the board did that annually. And I wanted them to hold me accountable. And that, they, they came from the priorities of the institution. And I mean, it's hard because most, most not all, but most institutions of, that are based in, 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 in the faith and in Christianity and, and, the, and the Lord's work, almost always they're all struggling. <laughs> I mean, it's just by, you're just always kind of struggling with a lot of things. You know, often financial and so on. So in this, this is nothing new. What is fa- these guys are facing, the specific is different, but the situation of these first two verses is extremely common in a ministry. Jim, uh, in, these, uh, in business, you wouldn't think of hiring someone without giving them a job description as to why exactly. they're being hired and what they exactly. were responsible for doing and what they were accountable for doing and how they would be evaluated. And the church also, uh, the, the Bible sets forth responsibilities for deacons and other functions. And, and Christ was very instructional in terms of what he asked them to do. And, uh, and right on point was you know, to spread the gospel. It wasn't to wash the windows. It wasn't to do some of the other things we've alluded to. And. Uh, and there's security in that, there's protection in that, and there's uh, predictability and uh, accountability. Accountability. And in an organization, when that's done, it certainly should be done in a church. Absolutely. Absolutely. always lean on the past. Absolutely. And, and they shouldn't be engaged in that kind of a um, behavior. And, and, and so um, I, I just... I think that's totally 200% right. Because <laughs> I've got a son that's a, a son of a, <clears throat> a, a pastor, too. So. It's just, this kind of a situation, although the specifics are not applicable, the, 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 what is going on here and how it's resolved is very applicable to us. It really is. I've used this in a lot of different situations with people. So how did the apostles resolve this? Fascinating. Verse 3, therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men. Now, these, when, when the, they're, the 12 are saying that, they're saying it's the Hellenist Jews, the Hellenistic people. You go, Okay, we understand what you're saying. All right, this is how we, we think it's wise. You choose seven men. Now, notice the three qualifications of good repute. They're above reproach. These are individuals of integrity. Secondly, they're full of the Spirit, meaning the Holy Spirit. Remember I told you that before, that that phrase filled with the Spirit is all over the New Testament. It means to be under his control. It's a matter of your walk with God to be under the Spirit's control and full of wisdom. And so if you want to use what Fred had said a moment ago, in a sense, this is kind of the job description. Here's the qualifications we're looking for. Good repute, above reproach, good integrity, full of the Spirit, walking with the Lord, and a man who's wise. How do you, how do you determine if somebody's wise? 
you got to know them, observe them, and watch them over time. How they deal with things. And again, if you go to 1 Timothy 3 or Titus 1, you see passages there where it's described, what do the spiritual leaders of the church, what are they supposed to look like? What are the people we, what are the people we follow around and try to say, there's a, there's a potential future leader? That's kind of what's going on. So they're very clear. This is, this is what we want you to do. We're not going to impose this on you. We're going to ask you to organize this ministry among yourself. We'll provide the aid you distributed. So, verse 4. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and ministry of the word. Again, that takes you back to what we read in verse 2. So, here are the 12 defining rather clearly their responsibilities. And everything else outside of those responsibilities, what did they do? Delegate. A good leader delegates. I know you know that. But a good leader delegates. Clear understanding of your role in the organization, whatever it is. And those things that are outside of that, you delegate. Do you hold that person accountable? To whom you're delegating this task? Of course. If you have somebody just kind of cut the grass, and you have a ridiculous example, but you want to make sure they cut the grass and take care of the property. That's why you have hired them. So anyway, it's just, it's, it's a magnificent insight. Clarity of understanding of what your priorities are as a leader. Those things outside of your responsibility of your clearly articulated responsibility, delegate. Give it to somebody else. You hold them accountable. If you want to talk about the way we talked about today, you do performance reviews, but you don't do it, so to speak. So it's just it's wonderful insights and reminders. When you go, if you ever study the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah is one of the most important books on leadership in the Bible. I mean, it's just Everywhere. Swindoll wrote a book on, on Nehemiah uh, called uh, Pass the Brick, and he has he, he discerns 12 principles of leadership from the book of Nehemiah. Well, anyway. Are you with me? Yes. Okay. Where, I lost my place. Verse 5. And when they, and what, what they said pleased the whole congregation, excuse me, the whole gathering. So, the Hellenistic Jews, that's a great solution. Instant buy-in. We got it. So they chose seven men. Now, these, some of these we know about. Stephen, he will be the main subject of verse 8 all the way through chapter 7. We're going to read a lot about Stephen. Notice he's described a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Philip, we will read about him in a couple of chapters, a very important leader. Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon and Parmenas, they're all Greek, Greek-speaking Hellenistic Jews. And then Nicholas, he is a proselyte of Antioch. Proselyte means he's a convert to Judaism. He lived in Antioch. Now, all of these guys have come to faith in Christ, but they're Jews. 
except Nicholas. Nicholas is a Gentile who had converted to Judaism and then came to know Jesus as his Savior and now is part of the Hellenistic Jewish church. <laughs> Did I lose you there? So we have these seven men named, uh, two of them, Stephen and Philip, we will see again and again, and Nicholas is a proselyte from Antioch. The other five, outside of Philip and Stephen, we won't hear about those. Those five we don't hear about again. That doesn't mean they're not inactive. It's just Luke is choosing not to focus. He, if he would focus on what all these people do, does, he keep bring up his in his book, it'd be a, you know, a book of 100 chapters. So he's just zeroing in on key individuals. So everybody is pleased with this. It's a great solution to an issue that could have ripped the Jerusalem church apart. Is this the Hebraic Jews and the Hellenistic Jews? When you say the whole, is the Hebraic Jews? You, you mean they agree with this? Yeah, the, the whole yeah they, they, they agree with this. The whole gathering, they agree with us. But it's the Hellen- they, these are Hellenistic Jews that are being chosen to do the work. Because that's right. That's right. That's right. Verse 6. These they set before the apostles. These meaning the seven men we just saw here. They prayed and laid their hands on them. Now, the, the laying their hands on, that's, uh, that's a practice. That's in the Old Testament quite a few places. The practice we'll see again and again. It's not, that, it's not necessarily something formal, although it will become sort of a formal practice, but it is a way of saying, I hope you'll follow me as I use this term, it's a way of saying we are anointing you for this service. It, I mean, when I say anoint, it's almost like, you know, they have a big service, some guy wearing a big miter. And a, no, it, it's, it's just they're gathering together. They're dedicating them to this ministry and are praying for them. I mean, it, it becomes formal. We in evangelical, I mean, when I was ordained many, many, many years ago and the earth's crust was still hardening, the, uh, the, that, that ordination service was really meaningful to me. It really was. And all of the elders and leaders of our church, this is back in Pennsylvania, gathered around, they put their hands on me and they prayed for me. And, then, and, and kind of dedicated me to the gospel ministry. And I have a, you get a little ordination thing that shows you ordained, I have it still in my office hanging. I mean, that's just, that's an important, that, that's another example of this. It's just the leader, spiritual leaders of the church recognizing and honoring a person for specific ministry. And so you see the wisdom of two key points in leadership. Understand what your priorities are. And two, delegate everything else. I mean, I, uh, I've seen this in lots of people's lives over the years. They try to micromanage everything. And if you try to micromanage everything, you're going to burn out or you will be very ineffective in leading an organization. A church, as, as well as a big corporation or a small business. Okay, any questions? This would be a great thought paper. 
discern three leadership principles from Acts 6, 1 through 6. That would be a great thought paper, wouldn't it? Is this Do next one? week, 11.45 a.m. <laughs> Go ahead. I'm sorry, Frank. Was this the first book on management ever written? No. Genesis, Genesis 2 is where God clarifies the respective roles, who he is, the sovereign, who Adam is, the dominion steward of God's world. Here are your instructions. But Nehemiah, Nehemiah, which would have been written about 410 B.C., uh, Nehemiah is probably the first major um, book in the Bible that really, really deals with leadership issues. You know, leading in a crisis, leading in the middle of rebellion, leading when people have lost their their hope and reason for doing because you know, they're building a wall around Jerusalem. It was a horrible, horrible task for them. And it's just masterful. That's why Swindoll's book, Hand Me Another Brick, is just such a great, uh, I think it's the title of Hand Me Another Brick, I think that's the title of it. A, a great summary of what uh, what's going on there. So, all right, no more questions. So, good discussion. I appreciate all your questions and so. Now, did the Lord bless this? Did the Lord was the Lord pleased with this solution? Look at verse seven. The first word of verse seven is, and the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And then Luke adds, and a great many priests became obedient to the faith. Now he uses the term priest. Who's he talking about? Levites. Priests who taught the law to the people. Priests who offered and assisted in the sacrificial system in Jerusalem. We are in Jerusalem. We're not anywhere else. So priests that were loyal to the old order of things are coming to Christ. And coming into the church. And I'll tell you, for a priest, like AD 33 or 34, which is where we are right now, for a priest to come to faith in Jesus Christ, they're not going to be doing what they were doing all their life. There's no way a convert, a Jewish convert who's a priest to Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior and Messiah is going to continue working in the temple. It ain't going to happen anymore. So just make sure you realize that when Luke says priests are coming, that means these guys, they are turning their back on their old order of things and embracing the new. So says these first seven verses are just really quite astonishing verses. A potential conquest which could have ripped the early church apart. Ripped it apart. And the wisdom of how the disciples, the apostles, the twelve, it's a matter of priorities. Let's get our priorities straight. Choose seven people. To, we're going to delegate to seven people this responsibility. You okay with that? Yeah. Okay. Here's how you go. Here are the criteria. These are the three things you look for. Choose seven. Bring them to us. They did that. Good. Prayed for them. Dedicated them. Crisis is over. And there's consensus. There's buy-in. Everybody sees this as wise. And then you just have that little addition in verse seven. The Lord, the Lord blessed us. The preaching of the word resulted in many new converts, including priests. I know we don't get excited about biblical truth in this class. This is an exciting section. It really is. Okay? 
Now, what Luke does, Luke zeroes in in verse 8, and as I said, this really will continue through the entire next chapter. Zeroes in and focuses on Stephen, Hellenistic Jew, chosen to be one of the seven, and Stephen, now in verse 8, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. We had learned up in verse 5, Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Verse 8, a man full of grace and of power. A man full of grace, copris. A man who understood the grace of God. And a man of power. Greek word is dunamis. And that is evidenced by him doing the messianic miracles. Wonders and signs. Remember, I've said this now quite a few times. You see this in the Jerusalem church. Signs and wonders, signs and wonders, wonders and signs. They're doing the messianic miracles to draw Jews in Jerusalem to the challenge. Jesus is your Messiah. All of these messianic miracles were prophesied would be done. This proves who he is. Now complete your Jewish faith by coming to know him as your personal Savior and Messiah. So Stephen is just carrying on this messianic work to the Jews in Jerusalem. Does that make sense, that way I've described it? Because that's really what is going on here. I didn't understand that uh, it would be additional disciples. Is that no, okay. Stephen as a disciple, I mean, he could create miracles? Not create miracles, do miracles. Yeah. would be, be, a, be a better way to... To say that, what do you, you got? Um, I'm not questioning it. No, no. All right. When you let's draw a big circle here. This is a circle of disciples. In AD 33, you have the twelve, an inner circle of disciples, the original disciples. Then, you, we've, we've seen these numbers before. You had 120 that met in the upper room. They're called disciples. And from here on out, people who convert to Jesus Christ, whether they are a Jew or a Gentile, are going to be called disciples. So, you are a disciple. Here's Woody. Woody's right here. You're a disciple. And I, and I found out recently I'm a Gentile. So. <laughs> You're a Gentile disciple. Yep. <laughs> but a disciple, a disciple is one who follows a master. And for you and me, we put a capital letter for master. As a matter of fact, if you go to Matthew 28, what we sometimes call the Great Commission, and by the way, is a really important charge to the church. As you go, baptize, and teach, make disciples. What's the charge to the church? It's to make disciples. Step one is they kind of they have to come to know Christ, but then 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 your work just begins. You how do you make you go baptize and teach? That's how disciples are made. And so I mean, these are people now, and again, this is what's going to become a challenge as you see these chapters unfold. Because this circle, right now, where we are, this circle concerns almost complete just Jewish people. 
They're the disciples. What happens when you get into chapter 8, when they're up in Samaria? Stephen, or Philip's up there. And Stephen starts, uh, sorry, Philip starts winning hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of Samaritans to Christ. Are they in the circle? Yeah, but they're Samaritans. Who's not going to like Samaritans being in the circle? The Jews. They're not going to like. And then, okay, then, then you'll, you'll read in the next chapter, then they're up in Antioch. And Antioch is totally a Gentile city. And there are all these Gentiles who are not Jews and are not Samaritans. They're Gentiles, and they're coming into the faith. And then Paul is going to launch his first missionary journey, and he's going to go to the Roman province of Galatia, winning hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of those to faith, and they're now in the circle. They're Greco-Roman Gentiles. See what's happening to the church. Now, you don't have an awful lot of diversity when they're in Jerusalem. But you get outside of Jerusalem, what happens to the diversity of the church? It becomes more complex. He was more tolerant of Gentiles compared to Hellenists? Yes. Yes. They, they would have been more... Yes. Yes. They would have, they would have been a, perhaps a bit more tolerant. And, and this is something we'll see in Acts 10. The Lord makes it very clear to Peter... The old order is gone. You must do and treat Gentiles just like you do Jews. Because all of the barriers have been broken down in Christ. And that's going that's that's why in chapter 15 of this book, AD 49, they hold the first first council of the church called the Jerusalem Council. And this is what they're dealing with. How do we who are Jews treat those who are Gentiles? Do we insist that they observe some of the mosaic practices? Do we insist that they be circumcised? Do we insist that they keep some of the feast days? And we're not there yet because we're only in chapter 6. But you will see, what's the conclusion? No, we don't. Because in Christ, those things no longer matter. And you, listen... You and I still in 2018, and we're not struggling with these units, but you're, we're still struggling with us. We, we like our churches to be kind of the same, homogenous. We don't like people that are outside of that. So, you know, they start coming into our church, oh, go find another church. It's all right, we're glad you came to Jesus, but go find another church. Don't, you're not going to fit in here real well. And that either... We either say that or our body language says that. I'm being a little facetious. But these are issues that, you know, just think. You see, listen. What God is doing is God is breaking down what happened in Genesis 11. The Tower of Babel and the spreading of humanity over the earth, all speaking different languages, God is breaking all that down. And the unity, the unity of the, of the human race is now to be found in Jesus and no one else. Jesus will re, if I can put it this way, will reunify humanity. Because Acts 2 is undoing Genesis 11. It really is. 
I mean, that's, that's, this is a macro issue. This is a big picture issue. <laughs> We're not dealing with that yet. But anyway, I, I'm sorry, I get on some of these bunny trails and I go wild. You're still with me, John? You've got the 12 apostles, and then there were 120 more, and, and outside of that, known yeah. as disciples. That's, that's correct. That's correct. Uh, did that remain kind of a outer circle of 120, or did it just keep expanding? Oh no, that was kind of a unique, maybe a if you know what a concentric circle is. Maybe I could make this a concentric circle. Okay. You just have more and more concentric circles, okay. but they're all unified. It may be ethnically different, language difference, color of skin different, and that's okay because the church is diverse. But the unification of the church is found only in Christ. It's not found in anything else. Was there a delineation between apostles and disciples? Yes, yes, How yes. How long did that end? When they, when the, when the twelve die, it's over. By the time John dies, John's the only apostle that wasn't martyred. He dies about 97 or so A.D. Then that special office, that special apostolic office ends. Okay? So, the Orthodox Jew. Right. In this period of Today. Time, no. Then. In 33. Are they out there doing what they've always done, or are they organized against this Christian movement? Well, that's a good question. Initially, where we are right now, they're trying to organize against against the Christian movement. They're trying to organize against it. That's what Paul is a part of that. And to organize against it with one purpose, destroy it, annihilate it. That was the purpose. But they will see, uh, you will see that it's not going to work. It just isn't. Uh, and so then, then what they do, and Rome plays a role in this, then what they do is they will simply then tolerate it. <clears throat> and that will go on uh, until the beginning of the Jewish revolt in 66 AD when the Jews rise in revolt against Rome. And they even, some of the leaders, the Maccabees, not the Maccabean, the, um, um, oh, what's his name? Well, anyway, w one of the key Jewish leaders will go to Christians and say, will you help us? in this revolt against Rome. And the Christian leadership says, no, that's, we're not about organizing a revolution against Rome. And so that, that, that begins the final cleavage between the growing church and Judaism. I mean, there's no, no possibility that then, then that, that cleavage gets wider and wider and wider. Good questions. All right, let's, let's continue. Um, Verse 9, I don't know why I get frustrated. I get frustrated because I'm not making time. But you seem to be okay with only doing like two verses a day, so that's okay. Yeah, well, one or two days, I think we even did that. You know. But uh, yeah, okay. Now, we've introduced again to Stephen, verse 9. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, and most of your Bibles will then have a little parenthesis, and I'm going to deal with that in a minute. But what does that mean? Um, I think in one of your questions, I forget which one, I, I talked about the synagogue system that developed. 
The synagogue, this and this, they, they gathered, again, similar to what we've been discussing. The synagogues would gather together in people who had a lot in common. I mean, it can be a geographical or families or tribes, whatever of the, of the Jewish tribes, etc. Here, it's a unique group. In, 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 in 63 BC, when Pompey, the great general who was um, for a while a close colleague of Jewish Caesar, but anyway, when Pompey conquered this part of the world, quite a few Jews who had resisted uh, what Rome was doing and so on, uh, he threw them into prison and enslaved them. That's why we are almost certain that this synagogue of freedmen are people who had been, they and their families, had been uh, enslaved by Pompey in 63 BC, and so their descendants continued that. They had been freed for a variety of reasons. Rome freed a lot of these groups. And then Luke tells us these were Cyrenians and Alexandrians. The Cyrenians, a little bit farther to the west, like sort of, not exactly, but sort of like modern Libya, Alexandria is that key city right on the Nile Delta. And then he adds, and of those from Cilicia and Asia. Cilicia are two Roman provinces in the, in the modern-day country of Turkey. Cilicia is where the Apostle Paul was from. So many speculate that Saul was a part of this synagogue of the freedmen. You understand what I'm saying? Now, I, I can't prove that. I'm just, but it's unique that Luke chooses to cite, it's a fairly small province, the province of Cilicia also. So those who are in the synagogue freedmen, they had originally come from Cilicia and others from Asia and others from Alexandria and so on. He's just telling us where they're from. And this synagogue of freedmen and their leaders among those who were from the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians and the Silesians, the Asians, they rose up and disputed with Stephen. That Greek word disputed is the same word used in the Gospels of the Pharisees and the Sadducees disputing. So what do you think? They're criticizing him. They're hurling <laughs> insults at him. They're challenging him. Verse 10, but... They could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Because it told us over in these introductory verses that he's a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Verse 8, a man full of grace and power. He was so articulate, so bright, so gifted, so empowered by the Holy Spirit that no matter what they brought up, Stephen, Stephen, is witnessing and powerfully representing Christ in Jerusalem. And so, like they did with Jesus, and like they did, this guy's got to go. we got to get rid of this guy. So verse 11, they hot, they, they, they put into, into action a plot, a conspiracy. Notice the language. Then they, they secretly instigated men. The Greek word, that's a wonderful Greek word. It is used of putting words in other people's mouths. What would be another way of saying it? Like we talk today in the 21st century. They gave them a set of bullet points. Here are the bullet points. We want you all to say this. The assumption is they're probably bribing them. 
although it doesn't explicitly say that. Secretly instigated. Here are the talking points. We want you to, all of you, say exactly the same thing about Stephen. Because we want to turn the crowds against him. What are the bullet points? We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. Now just think of that. If you are Jews, remember, this is Jerusalem. If you are Jews, you do not want Moses' name being dragged through the mud. He's your hero, right? He's the deliverer from Egypt. He's the lawgiver. He took them through the 40 years of wilderness wandering and prepared them for going into the promised land, which Joshua then did when he died. So to speak against Moses and God, these are the bullet points. These are the words that everybody's saying the same thing. Verse 12, what's the result of that? And they stirred up the people. And the elders and the scribes, the elders are the kind of the civic leaders. They're head of the various tribes and clans of Judaism. The scribes are kind of the theologians. And they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And Luke uses the word council as a reference to the Sanhedrin. So it worked. Their plot is working. They've got Stephen now arrested. And he's standing in the way the Sanhedrin, about 70, they gather in a big circle, and the person that's being charged is right in the center. So here's Stephen. And verse 13, they set up false witnesses. That takes you back to verse 11, but they hired a whole bunch of false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against his holy place. What's that? What's the holy place? The temple. And the law. Everything that defines us as Jews. Temple and temple mountain, the law. He's speaking against these things. Verse 14, we heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs that Moses delivered to us. Now see, that's, that, that's more incendiary. Did Jesus say that the temple would be destroyed? Yes, he did. Yes, he did. Matthew 25, he prophesied it. Not one stone will be left upon another. But you see, they're taking this out of context. That's all they want to do is stir up. Now they stirred the people up. Now they're going to get the Sanhedrin to get rid of this guy. Can I finish this? It's a quarter up, but can I just finish this? All right. And change the customs that Moses delivered. Oh, see, now that the word customs, I don't know if that's the best translation, but all of the traditions that define us uniquely as Jews, that came from Moses. Wow. And gazing at him. These are the people, remember I told you, they're in a big circle, he's in the center. Gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Now, Luke is, you know, Luke's using a simile, because you know, simile is you introduce someone as or like, so it's like the face of an angel. What does that mean? 
that's hard. I mean, it's hard to know exactly what does that mean. Yeah, he's at peace. He's not bothered by these things. He's reflecting the glory of God. So what you have, it's a little bit familiar with what happened, similar to what happened to Jesus. It's all trumped up. It's a plot. It's a conspiracy. Stirring up the people. Getting the leaders united against this guy. They succeeded. They succeeded. They've achieved their goal. Chapter 7 is one of the most magnificent chapters in this book because Stephen defends himself. It is a long chapter as chapters go in Acts. So it's great, though. It's, you'll, you'll enjoy it next week as we go through it. So thank you. Thank you for all your interaction, good questions. I hope this was a blessing as a chapter. It's one of my favorite chapters in the Bible, again, because it talks about leadership, but it's also just very practical for us. Lord, we're grateful for the Word of God, that it's living, it's powerful, it's like a two-edged sword. We're thankful that the Word of God is profitable for reproof and correction and training in righteousness because it equips us to be your servants that you call us to be, regardless of our occupation or vocation. We are to represent you. I thank you for these men that are willing to take time out of their lunch hour on Wednesday be instructed and and share and and apply the Word of God together. Thank you for each one of them. I pray for the special needs. I think of Jim again as he's facing these procedures. Give him grace. Give him the capacity to trust you. May he rely on your comfort and your strength, and your will be done in his life. We commit him to you. Pray, too, for um, all of the other needs and special things, a lot of it which we're not aware of. We're not verbalized, but you know each need each hurt, each request, for you know our hearts. So bring each one to your fruition, your will, your purposes in our lives. Lord, we want to represent you well. Help us to do that in Christ's name. Amen. 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 See you next week, Chapter 7.